Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 9 of Legion Cast. Today we are talking about Descent of Angels. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my friend Brandon. Take it away, Brandon. Hello, my fellow Knights of Caliban. Welcome to Legion Cast. If you can't tell, I'm excited for this one. This is uh, this is a big one for me. Yeah, it's a, a pretty good intro, and I think it's the most in-depth uh, kind of background we get on any of the Legions. We'll talk about that when we get to the book section, but... Let's talk hobby stuff. Uh, I know we've both got a couple of battle rep- reports to get to. We're going to dish a little bit about the secret Santa that we're putting together. No details, but kind of the, the the struggles we've been dealing with or, uh, you know, just kind of what we've been doing. And we also want to talk about some of the, uh, the new heads and shoulder pads that have been previewed. And there was one other thing. What am I forgetting? No, I think you pretty well covered it there, but uh, so let's get started in here then. What's on your hobby table, Warwick? So I am working on the Secret Santa project, and I think you put together who who got who, basically. And I'm not going to spoil it on here. We'll wait until the uh, till our next round table. But um, I have been working on a like very multi-part heavy kit, and it's got like a lot of magnets and... Uh, the, the dumbest thing that I didn't think about until I actually got into it was magnets also just stick to metal. So you if you have a magnet that doesn't fit where you need it, you can, you know, like clip off a piece of paper clip or something. Um, I use like um, I had a bunch of brackets for like hanging uh, pictures on a wall. I was able to file one of those down to size and put it in a place that I that I couldn't get a good magnet and it works great. So, um, I'm working on that. I've got like my first few paints on it already this weekend. I think I'm actually going to get it finished up and then hopefully I'll get it, um, get it all wrapped up and taken care of. And then, uh, I'm patiently awaiting something in the mail from whoever got me. Uh, what about you? What's, um, what's been going on on your end? Yeah, so I actually have not started my Secret Santa uh, project. I, I've got it put together and I've got it primed. Uh, but I am attending a heresy event this weekend. Um, and so I have been focused on my own thing so that I don't show up with an entirely unpainted army. Just a mostly unpainted army. Um, so right now on my desk is 10 Dreadwing Interrupters. Um, who are some of my favorite guys in the game. Um, I have had these guys hop out of a rhino and barbecue just about everything my opponent has ever thrown at me. Uh, I think that uh, Paul, our, our co-host, is hates these guys beyond anything else in the game uh, because he's been on the receiving end several times of these dudes, and I just love them. So I'm really excited to get some paint on them and get them out on the table and uh, really looking forward to the event this weekend. Uh, hopefully it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm uh, looking forward to hearing about that. Uh, do you want to get into the battle reports? I, I'm excited to talk about uh, the shenanigans that I did. Yeah. So you played a couple of games since our last episode. So why don't you lead off and then I'll, I'll talk about my one game. Right. So over Thanksgiving weekend, I was able to travel and hang out with my family, which meant Manipal and I got to hang out and have kind of a bros weekend where uh, we played a few games against one another. We did a 
what did we do? A 1,500-point match and a 2,000-point match, I think. And um, putting Bobby G in a Spartan with 10 Terminators with Lightning Claws is dirty. And another unit combo that he had trouble dealing with was I had a 10-man unit of tactical support guys with um, the Volkite Culverins or Calivers, whatever they are. They're like the range 30, heavy 4, and they all have the deflagurate. And I kind of set them up in a bunker uh, or like in a ruin so they had cover with a Master of Signal. Now the Master of Signal has the uh, the Vox Jammer and the... Um, uh, it, it It's the, uh, the rule that prevents um, deep striking or redeployment within like 18 inches of them. So Alpha Legion didn't appreciate that. And I was actually able to, uh, with the Vox Disruptor, I was able to disorder his um, ass- uh, Deep Strike Assault, and it it ruined our, his first game uh, because it he was Deep Striking a... Uh, he had a Flyer. He had a, like, 10-man... 10 or 20-man unit of Assault Marines, and I think it was Alpharius and the his uh, Lermian Terminators try to deep strike in. He got in Alpharius and the Terminators, but then I got to place the other two and I just put them on the other end of the board and shot them. So the first game was, was a lot of fun for me. And the second game was too. Um, like I said, putting Bobby G in that land Raider, he was basically able to kind of re- to deploy wherever he needed to. And that was really great. And as soon as those Terminators pop out, they, they shred anything they touch. So uh, that was a good time. In the second game, he changed things up and put his Terminators and Alpharius in a Land Raider as well. And he actually got them in a flanking position and charged one of my Contemptor Dreadnoughts. But when they killed it, it blew up and killed two of his Terminators. So it was a great trade for me. Um, what else happened that game? His uh, Flyer didn't come in until like turn four. And he was pretty pissed about that. We were doing like the blood feud. I think it was where uh, you pick a unit and you get victory points for killing that kind of unit. So he was running five tanks. I think he had a Kratos, two, two or three rhinos and the Spartan. And you got multiple VPs for each one that you killed. So I picked vehicles and he picked dreadnoughts for me because I was running two contemptors and a Leviathan. Um, the, Levi- the Leviathan is a lot of fun. Uh, I ran it with the Siege Claw and the... Fuck, I, the one that ignores the, the vehicle's armor or whatever. I can't remember what it's called now. It's the Siege Claw and the Siege Drill. No, not the... It, I was running a, a ranged weapon on it, too. I can't remember. The Conversion Beamer? It's not a Conversion Beamer. The Graviton Gun? Anyway. It's your Dreadnought. I have no idea what's uh, on Well, it. I can't remember now. My memory's terrible. Anyway... Um, it was a lot of fun because I was able to put stack it up on a, a big unit of veterans and tactical marines and basically shut them down for the game. And the, the Phosphex launcher is really cool too because it's got the creeping fire. So you can walk a three-inch template across a unit and scorch a bunch of dudes with it. So that was really neat. I also ran my Kratos, which is a lot of fun. I did find it gets a little frustrating trying to line it up right on targets because... It doesn't have the machine spirit, so it can't target multiple things. 
which is pretty annoying. But the Land Raider Spartan really excels at that. It can basically shoot everything. So uh, maybe I'll put some work into mine and kind of change out how it's um, kitted out because putting a pintle mount on one of those really pays now because because of the machine spirit, basically. Um, putting like another multi-melter or something on there would be really sweet. Uh, anyway, I ended up winning both games. I was able to stack up on objectives the first game and cap victory points that way because you, I was scoring at the end of my turn, basically. Uh, and then the second game, I was able to kill three or four of his vehicles and he was not able to kill... Uh, he was only able to kill one of my dreadnoughts. So by turn four, his um, fire raptor came in and it wasn't able to do enough to justify going on. So around turn four, we called it and in my favor. So, um, he was a little frustrated with that. Um, Exodus, he was running Exodus is a, a, a real piece of work. I'm not a fan of that guy at all. Uh, where I got lucky against Exodus was Maniple rolled like three ones, uh, sorry, three ones twice in a row shooting with Exodus. And he wasn't happy about that. So I suggested maybe he get better dice. Um, Maybe you should talk to him about that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I had a great time. What? To, how did your games go? Yeah, so I played one game against Paul. Uh, he was running his Sons of Horus. I obviously was running Dark Angels. Um, we played 3,000 points. Um, and uh, I brought the Lion and Deathwing Companions in a Land Raider Proteus. Um, along with some inner circle knights with a paladin in a Spartan. Um, then a couple of tactical squads, uh, a contemptor and a Leviathan and two squads of dreadwing interrupters and rhinos. He brought his, uh, his pride of the Legion list, which is Abaddon with 10 just Aaron, uh, two units of 10 veterans with the Bane strike bolters. Uh, they were in rhinos and uh, he actually, he brought four Dreadnoughts. He brought one Contemptor and three Castroferum Dreadnoughts, the box Dreads. And then he also brought an uh, an Imperial Knight as well. So uh, we, we rolled up the scenario and it was, um, it was an objective scenario, but the, the deployment was the ambush uh, deployment. And he chose to be the ambusher. Um, so I was the defender in the middle of the board. Um, so he closed in on me um, and honestly didn't do a lot of damage in his first uh, his first round. He actually got a shot off at my Dreadwing Interrupters and their Rhino into their rear armor with a multi-melta. And then he rolled a one on the armor penetration roll. Um, so they got away. Oh, he also ran 10 Seekers as well with their, with their Kraken Bolters. But uh, he ended up not really being able to do a whole lot of damage. And the knight just absolutely whiffed all of its shots. Um, it, it did not do very well at all. But uh, so in my turn, I rolled up on his Seekers with a unit of Dreadwing Interrupters. And then onto his three box dreads with the other unit of Dreadwing Interrupters. The... the Seekers were torched, just gone. Goodbye. It was nice knowing you. And then 
I was able to put take some pot shots at his veterans that had gotten out of their rhino with uh, with some of my tacticals. He did put some hurt on my tacticals. I actually had a squad falling back. And then I failed their rally check, so they continued to fall back. But then I I rolled up on him. I got the the inner circle knights and the paladin out. Oh, and also I took a librarian with them as well with biomancy. Uh, so they were getting the plus one strength, plus one toughness. I, I jumped them out and ran right into his contemptor dreadnought and roasted them. I put a few I took like three or four hull points off the knight um, with my two land raiders. Um, and then my contemptor killed one of his uh, box dreads as well as um, the dreadwing interrupters put several wounds on the other two. And then, so going, oh, and then also the Leviathan Dreadnought rolled up in his other squad, onto his other squad, popped a, popped their Rhino with his Cyclonic Melta Lance, and then killed the whole squad in close combat. So, so I, I just checked my, uh, my army list to go back to mine real quick. We actually ran a 2000 point match and a 3000 point match, and I was running my Leviathan Dreadnought with the Grav Flux Bombard. And like the the grav weapons are really cool, but they have like a lot of uh, tedious rules to them. And I was just reading through this wall of text trying to figure this thing out. But when you put the template over a, a it basically forces a infantry unit to take a toughness test because it's like the the gravitational forces are crushing them. And if they're not tough enough, they just take a wound, uh, which is, is was really cool for me. Um, and another thing I forgot to talk about was the right of war that I took. I took the, um, uh, uh, locust, low, uh, guy or whatever it is. Um, anyway, uh, it's a lot of fun because Bobby G has, um, preternatural strategy. So every turn he gets to pick like a different thing. So he can either give, um, plus two movement to all the infantry or, um, like plus one strength or a counter charge or stubborn. And then with the, the right of war, uh, every turn you can pick something else for them to do and you can't pick them back to back. You got to pick a different one. So if you pick the, uh, um, the assault one for the right of war and Bobby G's, uh, furious charge, I think it is, you can give your guys plus one strength, I think plus one attack and, um, I think they also get uh, plus one weapon skill all on the same turn. So I was running a bunch of tactical squads with chain bayonets and I was sawing through Maniple's veterans with that. So that was pretty satisfying. And then I also did the same thing with that unit of uh, lightning claw terminators. They charged Alpharius and his, um, the alpha legion terminators. And because their axes hit at uh, initiative one, my, my Terminators with Lightning Claws were able to shred his before they could even hit back, so that was really handy. I didn't mean to cut off your your match, Brandon, but I, I thought of that, and I wanted to talk about the, the Dreadnought weapon. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so, I forgot where I was at. Um, okay, well, uh, long story short, um, I, I put some pretty big hurt on him in uh, in round one. Um, and then we got to round two and he failed his reserve role for Abaddon and the Justerin. And he was like, I'm done. Um, I'm not even going to have an army by the end of turn two. 
So I'm good to call it here. So we ended up just running a few duels um, just for fun. We had uh, we had Abaddon duel the lion. Uh, spoiler alert: It doesn't go well for Abaddon. <laughs> and then uh, then we had Abaddon duel Corswain, um, which that one was a much more even fight. That one is pretty dependent on if Corswain can get his murderous strike off, um, because Abaddon Abaddon's best attacks come at initiative one. Um, and he, he will just butcher just about anything short of a Primarch if he gets to hit. The, the trick is you got to kill him before he can kill you. And then we ran we ran Horus against the Lion. Um, and that was an interesting one. Horus has got a special rule where he can only ever be hit on the a four. And that hard counters the Lion pretty hard there because um, the Lion has a bunch of bonuses to hit with his sword. Um, so they, they kind of go back and forth a bit, but, uh, Horace ends up having, he's got that brutal on his, on his weapons. He's got that brutal special rule. Um, so he's just able to take more wounds off the lion faster than the lion is able to, to get on him. So it was a lot of fun. Um, we also did Horace ascended the thousand point version of Horace and, I gotta be honest, compared to the the regular one, I was not blown away. He he gets some cool rules, but for a thousand points, I don't know if it's it's something I would be looking at taking. Uh, but yeah, it was a good it was a good fun game. Um, kind of uh, just got uh, Paul there got hosed by reserve rolls, which is kind of the nature of the beast there. But uh, we had a good time, and uh, we'll probably be playing again here soon. Well, that's awesome. So another thing I found out in both our games was in the first match, I set Bobby G and Alfarius up in a duel, which Manipal accepted, and they kind of tagged each other back and forth, dealing a wound or two, but it was nothing crazy. So in the second match, when my Terminators charged, instead of proposing the duel, I just had the Terminators stack up a bunch of wounds on Alfarius, and just the weight of, of rolling wounds was more productive than the long drawn out duel. So if even if Alfarius killed all of the Terminators, then Bobby G could challenge him to the duel and he gets calculating swordsman. So starting at like the second round of a duel that he's a part of, he can start to reroll misses of ones, I think, um, which is uh, pretty handy. So putting him in a duel is not a bad idea on a Primark though, especially like with Horus, if you're, if you need a lot of dice rolls, you might just stack them up in a tar pit for a round or two and see how that goes. Yeah, see, but the smart thing, though, in that kind of situation, and I hope that Manipole learned this, is if you charge and you don't challenge, he challenges you. That's what I would do. I mean, that's that's basically, you know, we had, we, we kind of game planned that out of, you know, if, if the lion charged the Jostarian, would Abaddon take the duel? Um... And I, I don't think he would. I think he'd accept with somebody else because the Justarian could all do that. And then just have, have the lion torch a Justarian each turn and Abaddon can go wreck Deathwing companions, which he absolutely would. Right. But yeah, should we uh, should we talk about some new releases? Um, we've got, uh, got some hot takes on some helmets here, I know. Yeah, I'm pretty bummed. I, I'm just... 
I'm bored and I'm annoyed because the Ultramarines helmets that they previewed look more like Raven Guard helmets. They're they're super sleek. Um, they got like nice lines or whatever, but they don't scream Ultramarine to me. And my biggest beef with and it's been the, the same way all the way through with with all these new releases. None of these helmets look good enough to spend. What are, do we know what these are getting priced at yet? Imagine it's yeah, $20. they're about twenty three dollars. Games Workshop is never going to be able to compete with three D printers on Etsy making generic bullshit like this. Yeah, so I I have I bought a set of the Forge World um, Dark Angels helmets. Uh, and you want to know why I did that? So I could hit free shipping. That that was it. Makes sense to me. And something I've been I've been mulling over, kind of thinking about quite a bit is um this generic look in in my mind and the way that I picture the Legion. This generic look between all of them doesn't necessarily fit the theme of the Horus Heresy. And my reasoning for that is because at this point in Warhammer history, the Imperium as a whole is at the height of its culture. So that that tells me that there should be more stylization, more art to, to this. And especially with um, the way that the Ultramarines are portrayed is that they're they're almost a very vain legion. Like there's a a scene in Betrayer where Karn is dueling this Ultramarines captain, and Karn's uh, description of this Ultramarines captain is that he's wearing this sash full of medals, and it's got more medals on it than Karn ever knew were ever fought in the Ultramar uh, segmentum. And he's just like, these Ultramarines will basically gold plate anything. So to have like these really plain helmets doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And like even the crested helmet is pretty lame because it's the only thing different about it than the one we get in like the standard box set um, is maybe like the plate on the forehead and the Ultima in the center of the crest. That's it. That's the only thing that's different. Are we looking at the same helmets here? You're looking at the ones with the eagle on the faceplate, right? No, no, I'm looking at the 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 box of uh, nine regular helmets. They're just the beaky helmets, and the the plumed helmet, and then the, the sergeant has the the laurel on them. You're you're looking at the the Forge World made to order sets, I think. Yeah, that may be. Well, long story short, those look terrible as well. <laughs> uh. It's supposed to look like an eagle. Uh, I sent you a link on Discord of the ones I'm looking at. Okay, let's see. Oh, yeah, I remember these. These, Yeah, these are incredibly boring. Um, yeah, so th- those are the ones I'm complaining about. I know which ones you're talking about. And they're, they're, they're also, uh, you can also get made to order like the chest plates as well. Yeah. Which I think the chest plates look pretty okay. Um, the, the, Eagle Wing helmets um, are kind of meh. They don't look as good as the ones on the. Um, that's uh, my that's my main gripe the, about the elites, them is yeah. that they they don't look as good as the old school like um, Ultramarines Honor Guard ones, and those are fifteen year old sculpts. Like I kind of expect more from you guys at this point, if I'm being honest. 
Like I'd sooner take, I would sooner just buy a box of those and take the heads off of them than buy those, those Eagle crested, the, the forge world ones. The, um, so I'm looking at them right now. Uh, the, the unhelmeted head looks really lame. Um, and the, the wing structure on these helmets look more like bones. So to me, if you wanted to do like a cool, uh, chaos space Marine conversion, you paint those up with, um, uh, like some skeletal horde or whatever, and, you know, make them look like bones or whatever. Uh, that would pr- you'd probably get some pretty cool looking chaos Marines out of that, but not, not ultramarines. I think they look pretty lame. The chest plates, I think, look pretty cool. And those shoulder pads are better than the the boring ones that the the, the other ones, the Mark Four, Mark Five. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. I think that they look like bones. Uh, it was very actually very startling to me because somebody had to tell me that they were eagles, and I was like, that that doesn't look like an eagle to me because I was very thrown off by that. But I want to talk about they also announced the salamanders heads, I believe today, and those look great. The salamander heads, they look like dra- snarling dragons. Right. So my argument, as I'm as I'm trying to keep boxed in, has been that there's some artistry to that that is indicative of the Salamander's Legion because they were all blacksmiths and armorers and they, they all had some kind of craftsmanship about them. And the Ultramarines, as I said, were this like uh you know, they, they like they like artistry, they like gold plating stuff, they like looking cool. And to have a bunch of plain helmets in in 30k especially, as I said, the Imperium's at the height of its culture. You know, they're really exploiting art, and the Ultramarines certainly would have been open to having a bunch of remembrancers with them when when that decree went out of Terra. So they would have, you know, human influence on the Legion affecting their art and stylization. Uh, At least that's how I feel. Um, Hopefully we can get some feedback from from you guys and maybe, maybe I'm just blowing smoke, but I'm, I feel pretty strongly about this. Yeah. Long story short, we're getting a little long in the tooth for this section of the episode, but long story short is if you're a Salamanders player, you should be happy. If you're an Ultramarines player, sorry, bro. Uh, let's, uh, let's take a quick break real, here. And then real let's... quick. Um, I wanted to talk about, we got somebody reached out on Twitter a while back and I forgot to tell you, but let me pull up the tweet. And I, I wanted to kind of box this in from the, the Fulgrim talk that we did, because I, I feel like we were um, pretty good on that. Zombie Roosevelt says, I love the Sol- Solomon Demeter betrayal at the end. I don't know what you guys were talking about. So my criticism of the Solomon Demeter arc is basically the setting. Um, I really like Solomon Demeter too. Um Solomon Demeter to me feels like was shoehorned into the scene at the end where he dies. And because Ben counter had already written that in and there were several other people there. And if, if Saul had killed the third captain, um, he would have been gloating about it to Saul Tarvitz when they had their fight. That's my only criticism. So thanks for reaching out, Brandon. I, I feel like you boxed it in really well too. I mean, Solomon Demeter is a great character and he was a good parallel to the rest of the story going on so yeah he had to die at istvan 3 but um like i said my my only criticism is the setting i think he he could have gone out maybe somewhere else and lucius maybe still could have gotten him yeah honestly you could have had him just get virus bombed somewhere else on on istvan 3 um i understand that they had to write him out um and this is not i mean 
get get used to this. This is going to happen a lot of characters getting placed into events that have already been told from another perspective. And then the author saying, oh, shit, I've got to actually get rid of this guy. Um, they died. And that's that's it. Um, I Do I think it could have been done better? Yeah. Do I hate it? No, honestly not. Yeah, and, and by all means, I don't. It, it doesn't kill the story for me at all. I just think that it maybe could have been boxed in a little better. That That's it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it could have been a little more well executed, I guess. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump over to Descent of Angels, because I'm, I'm getting excited to talk about this. So. I'm going to let you take the lead on this one, because this is your baby. All right. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break here and then we'll uh, we'll jump right in. Welcome back, Knights of Caliban, to Legion Cast. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get in here and start talking about Descent of Angels, uh, book six. And I, I want to do things a little bit differently on this episode. Uh, normally we kind of go through a recap and we talk about scenes as we get to them in the recap. Um, I, I, I think that we could do this a little bit better and, and, and be a little bit different. In, in how we're approaching this, especially with this book. Um, and what I want to start out with is this is a this is a very polarizing book, I think, in this series. Um, and, and what I mean by that is there are a lot of people, and I can definitely see the validity of this argument, but there are a lot of people who say either this book doesn't belong in this spot in the series or this book doesn't belong in the series at all. And, and I can understand where that's at. We've just gone on this five-book journey, starting with Horus and ending with basically the opening moves of the heresy. Uh, you know, the Dropsite Massacre is really the true opening of the heresy. Um, that's the first true open war, I would say. Um, Warwick, I think you would agree that, that that's... If we're talking about set pieces in the Horus heresy, that's the big, big opener. Um and then we just completely go out to left field here, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years before the Dropsite Massacre, um, and we're on Caliban uh, talking about knights hunting great beasts um, with with proto-chainswords and proto-bolt pistols and stuff like that. And I think th- this book draws a lot of flack for that. Um, a lot of people think that it doesn't belong in the series because it's just so out of step with the rest of this of the series um, and, and that it doesn't belong right here because, and, and I'll admit the first time I read through this series, I had the same thing as I was like, we, we just started this, this huge journey. The opening moves have been set. The board is set here. I want to see where things are going. And now we're just heading out to here. I want to get back to these characters we've been with before. So I, I kind of want to talk with you, Warwick. Um, do you think one, does this book belong in the series and two, does it belong right here as book six? Yes, this book belongs in the series. This is a, um, a keystone to the First Legion as um, it... Uh, how do I want to word this? It's a, a keystone of the First Legion. You do not understand the First Legion without the characterizations we get in this book. 
as far as is this the place for this book in the series, um, I think after the first five books, there's nowhere else you can really put it that that doesn't. Uh, it's going to be dislocating going this far back, like doing a whole prequel thing at any point in the story is going to be dislocating. And I think to just rip the Band-Aid off is the best thing. It doesn't bother me at all. I kind of enjoy the... I Actually, I really enjoy the the kind of cold reset that they do. You know, we're... in uh, the, the Horus Heresy itself is a galaxy-spanning story. We're going to have... Um, we're going to have moments like this where we're kind of disoriented. We're taken out of uh, that kind of rut that we were in. That's okay. Um, I think that the uh, the overall storytelling, the characterization that we get, the the kind of themes that we deal with in this book really make a lot of sense considering the Legion we're talking about. So I mean, we're, we're going to get into all of that. There's um, a, a, a ton of... Uh, little bits and pieces to pick apart here. There's a lot of foreshadowing. Uh, I think Caliban or pre-Imperial Caliban is a really interesting setting. I was texting you, Brandon, when I was uh, when I was reading through it, and I was like, I want a video game where you're a you're a knight on pre-Heresy Caliban, and you're hunting great beasts, and you have to like maintain a holding in your order of knights. And uh, it's kind of like a race against the clock, where if if you don't meet the deadline then, you know, either the Order sweeps in and destroys you or the Imperium shows up and you get glassed or whatever. Uh, it could be awesome. Just, GW, hear me out. Yeah, I even think it'd be a cool box game uh, that they could do, something like that. You could have some cool kind of, like, Blackstone Fortress-style models that are not really involved with the, the greater setting, um, but just really cool. And something, you know, to let those model makers have some artistic liberty. Yeah. Um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that this book absolutely belongs in the series. Um, and yes, you you do not understand the First Legion without understanding who these people are. Who is the Lion? And who is Luther? And not just like who is the Lion, the Primarch of the Dark Angels. You really need to know the nuances of his character to understand what goes on here. Um, and I think that this this book, it, it starts to lay the groundwork very well that's going to get built up in, in other books featuring the Dark Angels. Um, and especially Luther. Um, Luther is an incredibly important character, and he, he almost feels like a background character in this, which I think is so great, because that's the problem, is that he's a background character. Um, but... It, as far as the, the other side of it, of does it belong here? You know, I think you can make arguments for it, and I think you can make arguments against it. And I think that my counter to people who say it doesn't belong here is, if it doesn't belong here, where does it go? Because I don't think there's a better spot to put it. Maybe if they had structured the entire series differently, we could have that conversation. But this is the structure of the series. It jumps around a lot. So I, I really, I don't believe that there is a better place to put this. Let's let's talk about the introduction, um, because you and I were talking about it as we were going through the book. Um, and, and it's a great introduction, and you get a really good idea of what this world is. And it's it's a death world, 
which we haven't really talked about up to this point, but the classification of a death world is functionally just a, a world that is hostile entirely to human life, uh, even though there are humans there. Um, and generally, it, it creates a very tough breed of person. Um, it's in the 40K setting, one of the most famous death worlds is Catachan, which get, you get your Vietnam-era-looking Imperial Guardsmen, but Catachans are known for being just bigger and musclier than regular people. Um, it's kind of the same deal here on Caliban, but instead of you know a Vietnam jungle warfare type of thing, you have these knightly orders that go out uh, when a great beast is attacking a civilization a, or a, uh, a town or whatever. These knights, they declare a quest and they go out and try and kill it and claim the glory for it. And it, it's an interesting kind of way that life works here. Obviously, that, that all changes with the discovery of the lion by Luther. Um, he's just found in the wild, um, having killed a Calibanite lion, and uh, becomes the, the greatest knight in Caliban's history, uh, overshadowing the man who found him, Luther, who they say would have been the greatest, the greatest in any other time, he would have been the greatest man in Caliban's history but he lived in it's the same time as the lion. The, the, the narrator does a really good job in this introduction of explaining that to understand why some of the dark angels broke away, you have to understand Caliban and you have to understand its culture and its people. And this book does that just beautifully uh, in, in a lot of different ways. You know, when, when they find the lion and he, you know, he becomes a member of the order. Obviously, he's not like normal men. Everybody knows it. it it's fine. He, he's the greatest beast hunter they have. And he declares this crusade to rid the world of the great beasts. And this is this is what I want to talk about, because this is the overarching theme of the book. Is progress beneficial? Because... We see this in, in every section of this book. It's it's the people of Caliban progressing into a new age. It starts with the wiping out of the great beasts, and then it switches to the Imperium showing up and turning Caliban into an imperial world. So that's that's kind of what I want to pick your brain about. And you know, what kind of themes like in, in that vein did, did you pick up? Yeah, I I got the same feeling. Um you know, uh, a little a little quick descriptor about Caliban is that it's um, primarily a continental planet. It's covered in this, these primordial forests, and it's inhabited by these these creatures called great beasts that are all unique. There's not one that is like another, and they they prey upon the uh, the humans of the world. The knightly orders rose to defend the people against them, um, and. As you said, uh, we they do become the great play, the great beasts play their part because they become a uniting factor for humanity on Caliban because all the knightly orders are divided. <clears throat> How do I want to say this? They're kind of their own order of nobility, and so when the order crops up, they are an order of knights that will accept recruits from any walk of life, like any peasant can join, um, and any. Uh, you know, any nobleman can serve alongside them, which a lot of the other knightly orders don't appreciate. But I think the theme there is that uh, uh, disrupting the established order 
does make for a brighter future sometimes. And what I'm what I mean by that is without the order allowing that, <clears throat> then we would not have seen uh, because the lion didn't have any any bloodline or anything to claim, so he was just a nobody. He only ever could have risen to his status in the order, hypothetically, right? I mean, when when a Superman shows up, maybe the rules are different, but yeah, um, and that's uh, you know that that I think is reflective of of our world. You know, if you look at there's a lot in this book that when I look out into the real world, I see these things at play. So, I mean, you know, I'm a history buff. The The United States, when it was originally founded, was was meant to be a lot along the lines of a meritocracy versus the old establishment of the kingdom of the United Kingdom, which was very much, you know, noble bloodlines, you know, your, your, your birthplace was your station type of deal. And, and we saw this meteoric rise of the order because they're taking anyone, anyone who's worth it, anyone who's worth their time and can prove themselves. They're not getting caught up on these things. So that's the good side of things where we start to see maybe things start to go to awry. You know, we're progressing towards a good thing. Then maybe we start progressing past what's good. Um, and there comes a point where maybe we're just progressing to progress for progress's sake. And that comes in the form of this crusade against the great beasts. And the, the order and the lion specifically says, we're going to kill all the great beasts on Caliban and that will create a better world. Well, how will the world be better? Well, there will be no great beasts. Yes, but what's it? how does that make it better? And that answer, that, that's a question that's asked and they don't really have an answer for it. Well, the, the lion does say that, um, you know, people won't be getting killed out in the forests and, you know, we can, uh, clear more forest for farmland. So we'll have more food. Um, timber can be processed for building, and we won't have to worry about getting eaten by great beasts the whole time. So that's his argument, and it's a pretty noble one, in my opinion. And I think it has plenty of merit. So um, I, I definitely would have been behind the lion on this one. Um, I would have been too much of a wuss to actually go fight the great beast, but you know, I'd maybe like dig a ditch or something. I don't know. But um, well, it, it, it certainly is an enticing prospect, um, you know you've lived your entire life in fear of these great beasts. And now they're coming along saying, we're going to get rid of them all. And you say, that's great. Um, but there, there are, there are factions here. And we see one mostly in the form of the Knights of Lupus who say, hold on. Our entire society is revolves around these great beasts. We are knocking out the foundation of our society and saying, we're making a better one. But how is it? How is it better, and who's it better for? And what we see in this conversation with, um, what what is the Lord Sartana? He yes, is the Lord Sartana. Uh, he is the master of the Knights of Lupus, and uh, you know he shows up uh, as part of a delegation to kind of talk to the lion, and because the the Knights of Lupus they kind of want to maintain their own territories in the Great North, 
and uh, or in the Northern Wilds. And Lion says, you know, whatever, fine. Um, but as some scouts are sent out to the northern to the edges of the Northern Wilds to start kind of mapping that area, the Knights of Lupus kill that scouting party, and after that interaction, the lion goads Sartana into war. And at the conclusion of um, the siege of the, the last keep of the Knights of Lupus, our main characters uh, corner Lord Sartana, and they find out during the siege that the Knights of Lupus have been capturing great beasts, trying to maintain the population, basically. And I kind of got the sense, I don't know if any of you have heard the story of the Beast of Jevodau. I don't know if that's how you say it, but it was um, it was a monster in I think it's in France um, was going around killing people, and it was the, the story is that it's kind of um, the the local religion is using this beast to kill the impious and encourage um, more uh, a stronger faith in religion. Anyway, um, it, it kind of I think kind of goes in the same vein that. Uh, the Knights of Lupus want to maintain this order and force people into um, fearing the great beast and remaining this this anti or I guess this um, this society united against the beast because once the beasts are gone, Sartana says he sees an age of bloodshed where we only fight each other. And I don't think I, I think he makes some really good points. Uh, this this scene with Sartana, you know, we can talk. We can talk about Zahariel and Nemiel becoming knights, and it's really interesting. And you get to see the cultural parts of, this, especially the order, um, but of, of Caliban as well, in kind of their journey. In this, um, you know, they're they're very honor bound. They they place a high importance on tradition, although it can be argued that the lion only values tradition up until the point it's convenient. This scene, I, I mean, I could talk about this, this conversation that Zahariel and Nemiel have with Lord Sartana for this entire episode, because in that scene right there, that is the entire theme of the book all packed up to me is, and he talks about, he says, what happens to the knightly orders when the great beasts are all gone? You know, they, and Zahariel, I, I, it's great because he is an old man, um, and Zahariel and Nemiel, I think, are fifteen Correct. at this point. Um, and, and and it's it it works out great because it's it's two children having this conversation with this old man, and not seeing the wisdom in his words, and they shouldn't because they're children, you know. And and maybe later they might understand, but what he sees is. You know, when they talk about, well, we'll clear new fields for planting crops, we'll process timber, we'll be able to build better settlements. And he says, the peasants will do that. You're not going to do that. You're a knight. What do knights do? Knights fight beasts. And when there's no more beasts, knights are going to have to find something else to fight. And they're going to fight each other. So that that was a theme in Horus Rising when Loken is... Uh, going through and reading poetry and attending the iterator sermons is like, you know, what am I supposed to do after the crusade is over? And it's even something that uh, first Captain Sigismund of the Imperial Fist talks about is, you know, like, we're not going to have jobs when this is over. That's why I don't think it's ever going to end. You know, when when the Great Crusade is 
quote unquote over, we're going to be peacekeepers. We're going to, you know, be putting down rebellions and, you know, making sure that worlds stay compliant. Um, so it, it, it doesn't stack up that these knights are going to be, are going to continue hunting monsters when all the monsters are gone. Uh, yeah. And, and so, and I wanted to get, get there. Um, so this, this situation of the great beasts and the knightly orders is a micro, um, problem. When, then when you look at the Horus heresy as a whole is the macro, but they're the same problem. Um, one of the things, I mean, that's one of the ways that Horus is manipulated by chaos is they say, well, the emperor is going to use you and then he's going to toss you aside because you're not going to have a function anymore. And that's what the Knights of Lupus are afraid of is they're not going to have a function to exist anymore. And it's going to all descend into chaos. And we see on, on the macro scale, that's exactly what happens. Um, and I think the only reason we don't see that happen on the micro scale is because the Imperium shows up. And that's a completely different world-shattering, changing event. But this this conversation is just, it's so important to me. And it happens somewhat early in the book. Like, I don't even think it's halfway through the book that this conversation... No, it's, it's about halfway because um, the post-Imperial contact is about um it's about a third of the book uh on the on the back end so uh yeah it's it's more than halfway through because the vast majority of this book and something we haven't really talked about is our main characters and i I know you already touched on this zahariel and his cousin nemiel um going from being six-year-old boys taking these trials progressing through these different stages in in the order and becoming full-fledged knights. And it's the most comprehensive um, pre-life Astartes story that we, I think we ever get. So to me, that's very fascinating. Um, uh, but, but recapping the characters isn't, isn't really what I'm going to do. I know that I go into the story like in scene by scene in autistic detail, but um, I, I don't want to do that. I just want to stick to the themes. I know that I get really sidetracked on all that. So um Go, going back to um, at the conclusion of the war with the Knights of Lupus, they're hunted down to a man, they're killed in their keep, and all the great beasts are destroyed. And on the final hunt for the last great beast, the lion is out with his honor guard, and these black. Let me let me before we roll in there real quick. I, I do want to talk about that in the courtyard there because that's again another really good representation of what the problem here is going to be. Uh, and is that when the lion comes bounding in and to fight this one great beast that none of the other knights are able to take down and he starts to fight it. And then he is, he's not losing necessarily, but he's not winning. Um, and Luther slides under this thing with a pole arm and shoves it up into the, the soft underbelly of this beast which allows the lion to climb up on top of his head and basically take his sword and drive it through the back of this thing's skull. And when we see this happen, what we hear is the knights all chanting, chanting lion, 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 lion. When this honestly to to me, and and you can feel free to disagree with me. This is Luther's kill. It's, it's definitely, I don't think either one of them could have done it without the other, but as you said, the, everyone is chanting the lion's name while 
this blood-soaked Luther is pulling himself out from underneath this beast. So I think another theme of this story is jealousy. Um, and it's, it's later on said that, you know, Luther says, I would have been the greatest man of this age had it not been for the lion. That's a, so that's a great call out there. I think jealousy is a huge theme of this book. And we see that between Zahariel and Nemiel. They're constantly trying to one-up each other um, in how they do things. We see when Zahariel kills the beast of Endriago, uh, Nemiel is so jealous. Like He immediately declares his own quest and runs off without even thinking about what he's doing there. Um, and we kind of see... It, it's it's not done as well as the line in Luther because I think Nemiel ends up in Zahariel's shadow a lot more than the other way around. Um, but uh, they 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 both are, the, and it, it says that they are considered the best supplicants of the order at that time. Like they they are the top of the class, and that's noticed because they they've got this sibling rivalry. They're always working off one another. But as we find when Zahariel, so Zahariel goes on this beast quest because his mentor, Brother Amadis, was killed by the Beast of Endriago. Well, Zahariel is fighting the Beast of Endriago. Um, he finds out he has awakened psychic potential. He uses psychic powers to kill the beast. But another theme about this story, I think, is either secrecy or forgetfulness. Because something that happens to Zahariel while he's out on his hunt is he comes across something very strange. He comes across these creatures called the Watchers. And I think it's really interesting, Brandon, I don't know if you caught this, but the Watchers say they're part of a secret cabal sworn to fight chaos. Oh, I definitely picked that up. And we're going to talk a lot about that cabal in the next book. Um, and I, that was, so this going back through this time, I hadn't picked that up on the last run through but uh, that that was very interesting to me uh, because not a lot is known about the watchers um, they kind of are always around um, the dark angels but we don't really know what their motivation is other than this right here so uh, we, do we get, don't really know anything about how they operate either we get some an interaction between Zahariel and the watchers and the watchers uh are communicating psychically with him that uh, there's one saying like, we can't trust him. We have to kill him. The taint is already in him. There's another one that's like just conversing with him, trying to like figure out what he's doing. They want him to leave because this section of the forest that he's in, it has like this miasma in it and it's like kind of gross and rotting and he can't really figure it out. Cause he's trying to track this beast. He's like, is this a doing of the beast? And, as he's talking to the Watchers, you know, they say we're part of a cabal sworn to fight the evil of chaos. And is Raphael, I think, kind of saves himself by saying, I have also sworn to fight evil. Let me aid you in this quest. And Zahariel. What did I say? You said is Raphael. Oh, sorry, Zahariel. Sorry, sorry. All the names are very similar in this, which I really enjoy. Zahariel and is Raphael, since they, they're easy to mix up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, um... Uh, while he's talking to the Watchers, they basically tell him, you know, uh, your race is um, is doomed to fall to chaos and destroy the galaxy. Um, and he kind of gets the, the implication from this interaction that there are other humans out there. 
Caliban is a world that's been separated for like 5,000 years from the rest of humanity. Their technology has regressed. They can maintain basic firearms, these proto-bolters, basic power armor, it's proto-power armor, and these proto-chain swords, and that's what they use while riding on these great destrias to hunt the great beasts. Um, and Terra is a long lost myth. It's like, it's in, you know, it, it it's kind of like a, a ghost story. Basically it's, it's an old legend that your dad tells you on scary nights. And, uh, he gets from this. Uh, this is kind of one of my gripes actually about the book is that when they introduce this idea of Terra, they say, Oh, it's an old wives tale, blah, blah, blah. And Zahariel and Nemiel talk about it all the freaking time. And yeah. actually they're not really the only ones who do. A lot of people talk about yeah, this it's, all the time. I'm like, this is like how how often do you or I talk about an old wives' table tale in in our everyday doings? It, it just didn't. I was like, for for something that's supposedly like a myth, they spent a lot of time talking about it. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. Um, it, I I wonder if that um, I wonder if that kind of shows up. I'd, I'd have to check again. I'm not going to read the book again right now, but. Um, I wonder if that shows up post watchers interaction because it's in the back of Zahariel's head the whole time. Anyway, uh, the watchers send him on his way and now he's got this, this idea that there are other humans out there across the galaxy and that, you know, maybe one day we will see Terra again. He goes off and fights the beast, figures out, uh, he's got some kind of magic power, but going to the, the whole secrecy or forgetfulness he can't really remember the interaction with the watchers for whatever reason, like the whole interaction in that, in that part of the, the corrupted forest, he doesn't really remember. And then when he figures out he's got psychic powers, he doesn't tell anybody about it. And he, um, he doesn't really use them again until later on in the book when he's in a foot race with Nemiel and he taps into his psychic power when the Astartes around and they figure out that this kid's probably a psychic. Yeah, and I don't I don't think he fully understands how to do that. And it kind of talks about that a little bit. And when he kills the beast of Endriar, it's actually kind of cool what he does. Is this thing's on top of him, and he basically phase shifts his pistol inside of the thing's body and then pulls the trigger. Uh, which is I mean, that's cool. That's freaking cool. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. That that was really cool, actually. Yeah, it, it um, that it's a proto bolter, so it's an explosive round. He shoots it directly in the heart, and it basically blows this thing up from the inside out. It's it's a pretty metal way to kill a great great beast. Yeah, and um, and then and later in the race with Nemiel, um, it, it, for the Astartes, I don't think he knows that he's tapping that psychic power. He's just trying to run. Uh, right, it's so just that's part of that competition spirit to him. That's what he says when uh, when brother chief librarian is Raphael uh, notices what's going on. He asks uh, Zahariel after the race is like, you know, how did you win? And Zahariel's just like, well, I guess I just dug really deep. And uh, is Raphael's like, yeah, but where did you dig to? And, you know, from that, um, this librarian's able to put together that this kid has um, awakened talent. And, you know, that that gets cultivated later on in the book and comes into play again. But, you know, it's it's really interesting to see how, um, you know, it, it didn't just um, manifest in a way that got somebody hurt. He was just trying to win a race. So that's that's really interesting. He's 
yeah, uh, and, got and kind of a, when a it talks about when he talks about the beast of Andriago um, and how he killed it, he he thinks about he thinks back to oh, okay, I have heard of people being able to do this and then being burned alive. Um, so that that really plays into the secrecy of well, I don't want to be burned. So I'm just not going to say anything about it. And he even when Israfael is talking to him about it, he's like, please don't kill me. And Israfael is like, don't don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. But yeah, secrecy and jealousy, big themes across this book. I, I think you can you can see them them everywhere. In, in just about every relationship that we talk about. Um, another great example of jealousy is after the Imperium arrives um, and they select who's going to become a Astartes, um, some of these knights are too old uh, to become Astartes. And we've talked about Demi Astartes in the past. This is the first time where we get to see like a lot of them. So talking about jealousy, um, that that's the defining feature of, you know, uh, Brother Hadariel, who becomes Chapter Master, after um after the imperium arrives but that that is the defining feature of his character is that he is jealous and gets very angry when anyone mentions that he is not an astartes as i was uh saying earlier the lion is out uh, just to paint the picture of the imperium showing up the the lion is out um oh i think another conversation worth touching on is when um in the before Zahariel is knighted, the lion is talking to him up on one of the battlements of the rock. Um, uh, it, it, it's actually, uh, the keep is called Alderuk, which means like the rock of eternity. And the symbolism there is that um, so long as the rock stands, uh, humanity will always live on or something like that. And, and going on into a, uh, into 40k the rock still exists even like post uh post heresy so the i thought that was a really neat tidbit in there brandon the lion mentions to zahariel when they're up on the battlements that you know he's he's searching for something out in the future or or like um out in the world he doesn't know what it is and every time he gets this sense of golden light it fades away now while they're out on their last hunt um, their their uh, caravan is passed over by these great black shapes that turn out to be stormbirds, and they drop in these black armored uh, space marines, and uh, they they turn out to be the first legion before they're called the Dark Angels. And as they're coming down on their assault packs, Luther says, "And the Dark Angels descended from the heavens on pinions of fire." And he's quoting these old legends, and it's it's a really interesting scene. That it, that is so cool. When, I, when yeah, I know, that. right? It, that is like one of my favorite parts because, especially you know, we listen to the audiobook version. Uh, you know, when we're doing this, because honestly, the the print version is just so hard to find. Yeah, I'm having and, trouble finding a lot of books for my collection. Anyway, yeah, uh, me as well. But uh, the. I, I, I will touch briefly on, I, I didn't think this narrator did a great job. Um, we don't really talk about the narration of the audiobooks in this podcast, 
this is a very weak one, and I have one major gripe about it, is that when this Zahariel and Nemiel become Astartes, they still sound like they're 12 in his uh, in his narration, and it's just so frustrating. But his voice for Luther is like, and they fell uh, the dark angels descended from heaven on pinions of fire. And I'm just like, oh, it sounds oh, so yeah. good. That, that <laughs> was really cool. And uh, the, I like the way he does the lion as well. Um, anyway, uh, shoot. Oh, um, the first Astartes to land and take off his helmet is named Midras. I think he's a sergeant. But there's kind of this sense among the party when he takes off his helmet, he's got kind of this... Uh, this reverence or this he's kind of ad, uh, adoring the lion already and you get the sense that like everybody knows there's something between these warriors and the lion there's there's just you know they understand something new is going on here and from that moment on Caliban is changed because the Imperium shows up they start bringing in machinery and personnel industrializing the planet and we get back into this theme of change that okay, the world is changing, but, you know, who is it changing for now? Because our job is done. The Imperium does basically all the infrastructure work for us now. I mean, like, are are we still going to be knights? And later on, we find out that the Lion orders all the knightly orders to be disbanded, basically, and fall under the r- rule of the Imperium. So he immediately is compliant, which he... There's something else going on here, and I, I noted I, I mentioned he talks about the golden light. And what Midras tells them is that suddenly the First Legion was ordered to make full speed to this planet. The Emperor will be here soon. Because I, I don't know how the space magic works, but when the Emperor gets a sense that one of the Primarchs are near, um, he's able to kind of pinpoint the location and send the right Legion that way. Yeah, um, and, and this is, again, like you said, we really get into this this theme of this change is happening, and we get into, you know, is this good, and is it good for those of us who, you know, have, have grown used to this certain way of life? We get to this point where, you know, the, the Astartes trials are going on, and the knightly orders are disbanded, we find out the emperor is coming and Nemiel brings Zahariel to this, uh, this meeting that happens right before the emperor is supposed to show up. And Zahariel is like a hundred percent on board. He has drank the Imperial Kool-Aid. He is like, everything will be better from now on. Um, this is the best thing that could have ever happened. And he comes to this meeting that Nemiel has brought him to because Nemiel has some some small reservations. Now, I don't think I, I, I don't think that he was as serious as some of these other characters here um, who we don't really know. But, you know, one of them says, you know, we need to kill the emperor um, because they're stealing our way of life. And, you know, we're this is not good for Caliban. And what you're going to see as this goes on, this is the story of the First Legion, is their love of their homeworld and their way of life as compared to what the Imperials want it to be. And this happens for other legions, and this happens for other worlds, 
but we never see it in this much finite detail and get a close understanding of when the Imperium shows up, they, they really don't care what your life used to be like. You conform, and that is it. That's that's really, again, we're going to touch on the, the kind of monstrous factor of compliance is that your culture doesn't matter anymore. You're Imperial now. You pay Imperial taxes, you eat Imperial food, and you do the Imperial Imperium's work, you know, bloody as it may be. And so... You know, a lot of these, we, we see this scene where um, some knights are gathered in secret to talk about the emperor's coming. And they're like, we have to do something drastic, you know, to to um, to start combating the emperor. And to do so, we need to suspend the rules of chivalry. Um, we're going to have to do some underhanded stuff to win because they're clearly outclassing us. They don't, I don't think they really get the sense of scale of the Imperium, but... Uh, they they think that they can retreat to the forest and fight kind of guerrilla warfare to to rebel against this coming regime. Uh, it doesn't play out very well, and it, I think it ties into that theme of secrecy because Zahariel and Nemiel are both at this meeting that is considering assassination of the emperor. And after the conclusion of this attempted coup, uh, they never talk about it again because they know if they implied anything about knowing about this meeting, they would never get their shot to become Astartes, right? Yeah, and no, you're definitely right as far as they, they don't they don't understand the sense of scale at all of the Imperium. And even on the micro level, they and I think I think the book actually does this pretty well. They don't understand what Astartes is capable of. Like they just think that they're big dudes, but they are so much more than that. You know, they, they talk about, like, we'll retreat into the forest and fight a guerrilla war. Um, well, obviously, obviously the Imperium, when they were let that fly, they would just burn the whole forest down. Um, but, like, I think that these guys legitimately think they can go toe-to-toe with a space marine, which you and I know that that is just absolutely not the case. Yeah, the there are very few humans in 40K, I think, that can go toe-to-toe with space marines. I know... Uh, Gregor Eisenhorn does it a couple of times, but he's a psychic. I mean, he kind of gets a pass on that. Well, and, and they do the Eisenhorn books, uh, a little tangent here, but they do a good job. The, at least the first one I I've read, I've only read the first one. Uh, I need to get, it's a, it's a series on my list of things that I need to, to get through, but they do a really good job of when he goes toe to toe with that, that emperor's children's space Marine intervening factors, take place to make sure that that space brain is not able to solely dedicate their energy to killing him. Exactly. And in, in the later books, it comes up again and it's uh, there's some cheese to it as well. But it, again, it's uh, Abnett does a really good job of writing um, the contributing factors. I want to say anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I remember I, I did a, a RPG, a Warhammer 40 K RPG with, uh, with Paul and another friend of ours, uh, down here and um we we kind of had we wanted to do like a death watch style type thing and so i i was a death watch uh like s- veteran sergeant space marine the uh my my our friend was a he just wanted to be like a veteran old, old grizzled imperial guard veteran type dude and 
he he said you know his backstory for the rpg was like they were like how did you join the inquisition and he goes oh well the inquisition picked me up because i killed a chaos lord single-handedly and we were like uh no i you you would have been taken by the ecclesiarchy and made a living saint if you did that (laughs) like yeah you don't just walk away from that yeah so you're like we're gonna have to just for the sake of the setting we're gonna have to tone that back Um, but, but that's the point though, is that you, as a regular human, even as a Demi Astartes, you're not going up against these guys and coming out on the other end. Okay. And, and we get to kind of see the first potential of violence, uh, the, that these guys have, that these Astartes have, um, when Zahariel foils this dude, he recognizes one of the guys from the meeting in the crowd to meet the emperor and he goes after him. And he grabs him, you know, throws him down and all this stuff. And Midris comes up and just puts him in a chokehold and knocks him out and is like, you're a traitor. It's not really a chokehold. He just kind of picks him up one-handed. Yeah. And Zahariel looks Midris in the eyes and he gets the sense that it wouldn't even take a twitch of his fingers. He could kill me right here and now. Yeah. And that, uh, do we want to talk about the scene with the Emperor? Because I think it's a really cool scene where you yeah, so derive a lot of information out of it. Midris is Raphael, and I think an apothecary conduct a uh, interrogation of is uh, Zahariel. Now we know that um, is Raphael is a librarian, and we see this interaction, the psychic interaction, because um, Zahariel understands that he's got this um, awakening or virgining psychic talent. And he uses it to try and push back against um, is Raphael while he's trying to kind of probe the, the depths of his memory. And as he does so, he gets this, uh, Zahariel gets this very pleasant um, kind of melodic voice in his head saying, easy now, son, you know, that's, you know, you're not really sure what you're dealing with here and it's very dangerous. Just be patient and we'll see this through. And it's, you know, he's kind of filled with this golden light and he's kind of at peace. And, you know, finally he, um, uh, all three of the, or I guess at least Midris and is Raphael are, or Midris is basically goading him on, calling him a coward, calling him a wuss, saying he doesn't have what it takes to be a, an Astartes and like kind of trying to wear him down. They're kind of doing the good cop, bad cop thing. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of reminiscent to a scene at the very beginning of the book with Zahariel when he's being inducted into the Order where um, Luther is sitting there goading him and trying to tear him down. And um, the lion is just asking him questions. And then I believe it's Lord Cypher who, who's kind of like playing in his favor. But we see that play play out again. Um, there's not a third, the, the apothecary doesn't really play a factor in, in this scene of it, but you see Midras kind of tearing him down. Whereas uh, Israel is just kind of asking him questions, but also is kind of a bit on his side and the one part I really like here is when he does – is he talks about how the, the room is like almost pitch black and he can't see anything. And when he's resisting is Raphael's psychic probe, he says the room lights up for him. Um, and they know that something psychic is going on and he goes, I can see you. And it, it actually talks about how like Midras and the, the apothecary are like, 
oh fuck like <laughs> yeah yeah they they panic for a minute because they're like oh this kid's actually got the sight and um the i think one of my favorite parts about it is when midris is calling him a coward um Zahariel like pushes back because Z- at this point Zahariel is he might still be a kid he's like 16 at this point he's fought in the siege of the knights of lupus he's killed um a great beast at least one great beast and he uh, he in the courtyard of the knights of lupus he fought and killed another one so he's killed two um well he and then he fought a third one when he was like 11 so oh yeah, yeah. So, so he's he's <laughs> fought in and been successful against three great beasts so when he's defiant to a full astartes like midras wasn't really ready for that so it's really interesting to see that dynamic that you know the, the kid's fearless and that's really really cool well and, and i think it speaks volumes about the rest of the knights of caliban because you know again we see these knights who want to assassinate the emperor they're not afraid of these guys um and now i don't think that they understand the full potential of the astartes but also it that just it speaks to that they have this very strong warrior spirit um, and they are very convinced of their rightness when when they believe in something. Um, so and, and that's really important for the journey that the Dark Angels are going to go on. And it also is part of what makes them such an effective legion is they just they have the drive to win. It's the conviction. I don't think yeah. any other legion has the conviction that the first legion has. The conviction and like the knowledge that they are the best at what they do. That's that's something that isn't really touched on in this book, but we'll get to later. Of you know the guys who are from Terra, the the guys from Caliban are headstrong. You know they're like we fought the great beasts. We were the you know the knights of the order. All of this stuff, and then the guys from Terra are like. We fought right next to the Emperor. The rest of the Astartes are based on us. So, and and you see that there is just an intense pride in every member of this Legion. And it comes from different places, but it's really important. And it, it, it really is what makes them so effective. Um, Horus was terrified of these guys. Um, it, it talks about a little, he talks a little bit in False Gods about how, you know, he thought... He could ambush the Ultramarines and kill them. The Ultramarines are by by and far the largest legion and an incredible fighting force. We haven't seen them yet, but I I can confirm for you that I can't they, wait. they absolutely I cannot are. Wait. They they are worth being afraid of. The Blood Angels are considered one of the the greatest legions. He sets them up to be ambushed. Um, you know, he sets both of these legions to be ambushed. He doesn't do that with the Dark Angels. He's like, I just got to spread these guys out and then I'm going to send the Night Lords to hopefully keep them from regrouping long enough. Like, he yeah, doesn't even Horus, try. Horus basically wants to send the Lion on a wild goose chase until the Horus Heresy is over and then deal with them separately. Yeah, he basically wants the Lion to just be the last player on the field because he can't take him beforehand. And... I'm getting off onto a rant here, but that, I'm I'm fine with it. I'm just going to roll. But this is after the Rangdan Crusade. Think about it. the 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 Dark Angels lost fifty thousand Space Marines in the Rangdan Crusades, more than any other Legion would lose at any point before the Heresy. And Horus was still horrified of these guys. Give us a little backstory on that. So the, uh, honestly, not a lot is known about the Rangdan. Um, they are some kind of species that. But 
what is known about them is that they were capable of destroying the Imperium. And right. so I, I remember now. Um, so one of the lost primary theories is that one of them died fighting them. Yeah. Um, and actually we can talk about that a little bit because um, it kind of plays in here in this scene with, uh, with the emperor coming to Zahariel and basically the emperor is like, Hey, you did me a solid. And so I'm going to, you know, let you off here, but we're going to remove your memory of this whole incident. And his Raphael is like, yeah, no problem. I can do that. Um, and, and they just do. And it talks about how he remembers the emperor giving his speech, but when he tries to really concentrate on it, he just, he thinks he was so awestruck that he just can't really focus. It's because it's a false memory. That's um, why I said not just secrecy, but also forgetfulness is a theme of this book. Because mm-hmm. as we see in, there's a book later on where forgetfulness is one of the themes. Yeah. And it, it, um, it but, plays into the, the whole warp, warp uh, kind of manipulating people's minds, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but talking about the Rangdon, again, one of the theories about the lost Primarchs is that one of them died in the Rangdon Crusade. Now, we know that the Emperor sent the First Legion uh, because they were the most powerful at the time. It, it stands to reason it's believed that he sent the Second Legion as well. Uh, and their Primarch died. And the going theory there is that their Primarch died. And that was such a it, that would have been such a morale hit to the Imperium. And I mean, we've seen this already in books, previous books that these guys were thought to be unkillable. Look at I mean, look at when Horus was wounded Everybody went insane. Um, even even other spa- even their space marines, even even the 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 mortable, just what they threw caution and rationale to the wind. I mean, I know we were just exchanging that great golden meme of the guy sitting with his wife on the couch and he's like don't worry baby I found you the best doctor I could find and it's Horace and the mortable and there's a gentleman that walks in and we all know, and he's labeled Erebus and we all know what's going to happen there. Somebody's going to get <laughs> golden memes. Yeah. Um, We're yeah. big meme people. Actually, if you want to tweet us 40 K memes, we will look at them all day. Oh yeah. You, I will <laughs> meme us up. I love it. Yeah. Um, but the, the theory was that the, then the second Legion was taken and they were all psychically um, mind wiped functionally. And, put into the the ultramarines and that's why that's, they're so big yeah and so, that's also and part another part that feeds into that theory is that the ultramarines are the only legion to have two gloriana class ships yeah so the emperor had 20 gloriana class ships made one for each primarch and it's really weird that gilliman had two yeah and, and we know that 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 memory modification took place around those um those two legions based on other books but that, I think that is my uh, most interesting theory. But also, if we want to talk a little more about Lost Primarchs here, because uh, I'm having fun with this conversation. I love, yeah, let's do it. There, There's two Lost Legions. And the meta reason that there are two Lost Legions is that Games Workshop wanted you to have enough room to create your own thing. But in the lore, there's lots and lots of theories around these two. Now I think that with the, now they're referred. There's a couple of things we know. We know neither of them fell to chaos. We know that for a fact. That is that is stated. The other thing that we know is that they are referred to as the lost and the purged. Now I think the lost died 
their Primarch died in the Rangdon Crusade. I think that's what happened. And then they, their, their remaining were my, their remaining Astartes were mind-wiped and thrown into the Ultramarines. I think the Purged did something to piss the Emperor off, and I think the Dark Angels killed them all. Well, I, I get your reasoning behind thinking the Dark Angels did it, but Lehman Russ also implies that he's also fought and killed a Primarch, because he was said to be the Emperor's Executioner. Now, he, he he talks about he didn't realize a Primarch could be killed when he hears about Ferris Manus. He, he does say that. He doesn't know that they could be killed. He talks about fighting his legions fought other Astartes, hmm. uh, which we know there are points where he fought. Like, we know he's got... Didn't he get into a fist fight with the lion? Yeah, so he dueled the lion several times. They fought for like a week and a half, I think. And then um, Lehman Russ and the Space Wolves were deployed against the World Eaters to get Angron to stop implanting World Eaters with the Butcher's Nails, which are um, brain implants that make them psychos. So when Lehman Russ was deployed, the Space Wolves had the World Eaters dead to rights, and Lehman Russ you know, easily could have had Angron killed in that fight. Now, it looks like Angron won the duel between both of them, but Angron was completely surrounded by, um, like, heavy weapons, gun lines, other, you know, just regular space marines, because that's how the space wolves work. They're pack hunters. Anyway, um, the space wolves basically won that fight. They were killing the world eaters. And um, so it's implied that the space wolves can win against other Astartes. And that's, Horace talks about that too um, in, uh, it's talked about in Prospero Burns where the Space Wolves were considered one of the greatest military threats against Horace. Yeah, and and I know that the popular theory is that the Space Wolves were the ones who wiped out the Purged. Um, The reason I go against that is one, because I want it to be the Dark Angels. (laughs) But two... There's a there's a there's a scene in the Lionel Johnson Primark book where and this is post Rangdon Crusade um, when when, the, when that book takes place, but the there's a part of that where they're walking through the Dreadwing vaults, which is all of these esoteric Age of Darkness uh, or Age of Strife weapons that the Dark Angels just have that no other Space Marines have access to but one of the things they talk about is they say and and i'm i'm gonna butcher the quote but it's something along the lines of you know the space wolves brag about being the emperor's executioners but when the emperor actually wants the job done he calls us i can actually box that in because the popular theory is that the custodies along with the they would have been the Warhounds at the time, so pre-heresy world eaters, and the First Legion were deployed to kill the last of the Thunder Warriors, which were the proto-Astartes that the Emperor used to unite Terra. Yeah, so, I mean, we can talk about these theories all day. Um, maybe we could do an episode just talking about the some of those, like, out-there theories and stuff like that. We'll get the whole panel on. Yeah, it might um, be a, a good hobby roundtable. Yeah, that would be fun. But get, getting back to, to the book, to Descent of Angels, that that you're you're absolutely right. That theme of forgetfulness is very apparent and, and secrecy. And that doesn't really go away. Um, even after they be, all become Astartes, we talk about the jealousy of Hadariel and not becoming a 
a full-blown Astartes. When when the Legion arrives to uh what the hell's that world called? Um, where they get deployed to. Sarash. Sarash to relieve the white scars. Uh, which one I thought was a really interesting, kind of weird assignment for them. Because the first the sure the lion has just taken over the Dark Angels. But the first Legion is already very established and has a very unique culture and is well known. So I did some research, and it is because um, the the lion is just getting his feet under him. Jagatai Khan was found just a few years, I think, before Lion. So he is, at this point in his career, a total glory hound. And the... The... Uh, White Scar's contingent that has been holding station over this world has been repeatedly... They're trying to get him, get that unit reassigned several times. They've been holding station for a year. And so I think just um, the Khan making a big enough fuss about getting, um, getting his troops back is enough to get them moved on. And also the, the politics behind this scene is that the governor-elect is running interference for this planet, basically, because he wants the most stable governorship he can get. I think it's because he's, he's honestly trying to have the most stable career he can. The reason that um, to subvert someone like that, you have to send someone like a Primarch. And because the lion is just kind of like getting into the swing of things, a two-month assignment on a planet like this is good for him to establish kind of his relationships with the people around him. So it's it's a weird assignment, but I think the, the political nature of the situation is 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 uh, worth considering. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, but then, again, touching back to the theme of secrets, um, we, we see that, like, the first thing that Zahariel is told by the, the white scars when he relieves them is do not trust these people. They are lying about something. We don't know what, but they're lying. And we get to see kind of uh, what, what a compliance looks like to a non-hostile world. Um, and, and it's really interesting. Um, but we also get to see like, the politics at play here. And yeah, one of the things that's interesting about governor elect first is I think he's the first, he first, he's the first governor that we've seen that actually seems to want the job. Most of the governors we hear about are these army commanders who are like, please, for the love of God, don't leave me behind. This is like, it's almost seen as like punishment for these guys. But this guy seems to be all about being this, this place is governor. Um, and he wants, he wants that stability. He wants everything to go off without a hitch. We see that, uh, that's, that's kind of delaying and, and it's really rubbing a lot of people the wrong way because he's letting these Sarashi traditions stand where in a normal compliance action, all of these things would be taken out immediately. Um, and like one, we see one of the big sticking points is that, uh, one of the big sticking points is that Imperial Gothic is supposed to be used in all official government matters. And they're like slowly going about it and adapting these things. I think it's kind of hilarious that uh, they are a massive bureaucracy where nothing gets done. It just makes me think of our government, which is more bureaucracy than elect elected officials anymore. 
Um, so I got personally a really good chuckle out of that. We see that uh, when the lion shows up and yeah, there's a timetable now put on it. They're like, you have two months to make this place uh, compliant and certify compliance or the lion is going to come in and that place will be compliant. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to me because um, we almost see like a change of pace here from the Sarashi people in that they, they know something big is happening. They know this is a big deal. And, and so they start to take action towards it. But the the governor just seems to, I mean, he, I'm not sure if it's rose-tinted glasses or if he is just desperate for this to go right because he sees it as like kind of his shot or something like that. But he just so badly wants this thing to go right. And these people are just delaying and delaying and delaying. And people are getting frustrated and it's going to hit ahead. And I think that the white scars are, are right when they're like, don't trust these people because they seem to be able to get things done when they want to, but they don't seem to want to despite what they say. Yeah. I, I, um, I definitely got to get a kick out of the, uh, the ineptitude of the, the bureaucracy unless it suits them. That is very reminiscent of the real world. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, yeah, we definitely get the sense that um, the the Sarashi, they want they're saying that they want this, but they're not doing anything to get it done. And yeah, I, I agree with you about um, Governor Elect first is it's really weird that he is uh, hopeful for this position because as you said, these guys usually don't want it. I'm trying to think uh, the. Um, as far as the the Imperium has been installing bodies of government, they've been putting like outposts or um, like uh, their own administrative hubs on the planet. And um, over the year that they, the army garrison has been there or has been in orbit, they've been allowed to take leave on the planet. So they're kind of getting, um, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but they're getting used to the Sarashi people. And they're getting complacent in- is what they're getting. Exactly. And that, that comes into play, uh, later on, we see when, uh, when the Sarashi try to strike back now, when, uh, uh, real, real quick, one thing I do want to touch on because, you know, we've talked about this theme of secrets and lies. I think it's really interesting that the author made the choice here to, um, make them all, all the Sarashi wear masks. It's, yes. it's a very interesting choice that I think plays to the theme of the themes of the book very well. The Sarashi people wear masks all the time. You never see their faces except for uh, their their Lord High Exalter uh, comes in barefaced, I believe. Or is one of the best burns in this book is from Nemiel when the Lord High Exalter. Um, oh, rewinding the clock real quick. Um, when Zahariel is talking to Shang Khan um, about uh, the transfer of leadership. Um, the White Scars found something curious in a census in that like 8% of the population has gone missing over like the last year. That's like, um, that's what, like 70 million people, I think he said. It's it's a lot of people go missing and it's really bizarre. So when the Lord High Exalter lands, Nemuel turns to Zahariel and says, I think I know what happened to all the missing people. It looks like their leader ate them. 
they should call him the Lord Wide Exalter. And I lost it. That is about the best line in the book. <laughs> because oh he's this, this so ponderously funny. fat man. And he comes in to make all these pleasantries and he can't walk more than a, you know, a leisurely pace. And it's just, it's very well written. Just the, um, the, the decadence of the man. He lands in the shuttle and here's, I, I wonder if you'll back me up on this. I think there's a bit of oversight here because when the shuttle lands, um, Luther and Zahariel go to inspect it. They're like, ah, it's, you know, it's pre- uh, pre-unification technology. Um, they mentioned that the Mechanicum scanned it on the way in, but it's a pattern well known um, uh, in the uh, pre, pre-unification logs or whatever. So they kind of lost interest in it. And uh, Luther says, oh, they have no love of history or whatever. And they go to inspect it. And uh, it, while the line is off with this delegation doing that, um, the Lion and Luther get to looking over it and they notice there's like a lot of weird stuff about this shuttle. But while the Lion is with the delegation, this um, Lord White Exalter says, um, you know, we uh, we don't really agree with the Imperium 100% because you don't have any religion. And the Lion says, well, we're let, we were led to believe that you don't have any religion either. You don't have any churches or fanes or anything. And, you know, you, you never talk about it. And he said this... Lord White Exalter says, well, that's because we keep it secret because the Melikim have declared it so. And the lion like snaps at, you know, all the Imperial officials. Like, why am I just now hearing about this? This is a pretty big deal. If they, if the Imperium knew that this was a religious religion based culture, the invasion would have began yesterday. Yeah. It's the first thing that would have happened as they would have, been like okay well this government can't be allowed this government will never be compliant and and it's interesting that they it's almost a perfect storm setup of their religion was set up just perfectly to not be discovered um which you know i guess for the purposes of the plot sure you know well Um, in secrecy secrecy plays a a role there because the this guy says that it's a um, it's a private matter for my people, uh, and we keep it to ourselves because the Melikim have declared it so. And we find out that the Melikim are this um, kind of warp based Xenos race that is influencing. I, I do want to talk about the Melikim in, in kind of detail, but uh, let's let's talk about the the embarkation deck and stuff first. Right. So down on the embarkation deck, while well, the the um, um, diplomat diplomacy is going on. Luther, well, Zahariel is down there by himself and he notices that the embarkation deck is completely empty. And he's like, well, I'm going to look at this shuttle again. I think there's something fishy with it. And looking over it, he sees that that this this is just a... This is... Luther looks at this thing and tells him to leave. And he does. And he's like, there was something weird there and goes back. Right. So when he returns, he notices that the whole embarkation deck is empty he gets looking over this and he sees that there's no heat shielding on the bottom of this shuttle, which if you know anything about um, atmospheric re-entry, if you don't have a heat shield, you'll burn up on re-entry and die. So this was a one-way trip. He puts that together really quick. He looks a little further into it and he notices that the nose of this craft has been heavily modified. And when he pries open a panel, he finds a nuclear device inside. Now, Brandon, 
Why in the hell would the Mechanicum not scan a vessel for possible armaments? So, uh, I actually, I, I have a theory here. Um, the, I, I think, so, if, are, if you're familiar with a modern day submarine, they run based off of a nuclear reactor. So what I think is if they picked up a nuclear readout from this thing, and it, it's very old technology, it doesn't have a plasma drive is my understanding, or well, it does, but I think it could have been written off as this thing's old and has a nuclear reactor to draw power. So that that was my theory on it. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I, I buy that. that that's, uh, what do they call it? Suspension of disbelief. I buy it. So... Um, I, I was a little annoyed by that, but I that, get it now. Le- that being said, you need one throwaway line here to be like, oh, nuclear power? This thing's old. That's all you need. Fair enough. Yeah, I buy it. Um, well, as is Raphael, is Zahariel figures this out, Luther shows back up. And Zahariel says, you knew. And we get some exposition from Luther here saying that, yeah, I knew. I thought that, um, you know, I could, I could have all the things I ever wanted if I just walked away. I could have been the greatest man in Caliban's history, if not for the lion. But after I walked away, I thought I'm the luckiest man alive to serve alongside him and call him brother. So I came back. We have to stop this. It, yeah, it, it's really interesting, and it, it also it lends to the tragedy here of, of Luther, um, in that he, it, I mean, it all comes tumbling out. This is, I mean, we this has been year decades at this point that Luther has just been living in the lion's shadow, um, and that's going to be tough, you know. I mean, he found the lion, he brought him out of the wilderness, he brought him to civilization. And the lion has just eclipsed his every deed since then. And so, yeah, he he has a, a incredible moment of weakness here where he was tempted and said, all I have to do is just walk away. Um, now, based on what we know about this device, I, I don't think he could have just walked away. <laughs> um, he would have had to transfer to another ship and that would look really weird. Yeah. Um, but uh, the... There, there is a redemption there in that he he says that this was I, I can't I can't do that. I, you know, I, I love my brother, um, despite any misgivings I have about my station in life. You know, it, he, he does love the lion. Um, so he comes back. And I think it's it's a great kind of tragedy here that the lion doesn't understand what happened here. Uh, because a lot of things would have gone differently had he reacted differently. But they, I mean, they end up explosively decompressing the embarkation deck to get this ship out. Um, and while that's happening up in the reception hall or whatever, this Lord Wide Exalter is talking shit directly to the line, which you have got to admire the stones on this guy to be like, fuck off to a Primarch. Um not not to just say fuck off to a Primarch, but to talk shit about a Primarch's dad to his face. He he spits on the Emperor, he denounces everything about the Imperial Truth, 
And before he can get his last insult out, the lion cuts him in half in the blink of an eye, which we see this a couple more times with the lion. And it's some of the best shit because nobody sees it coming. They talk about how Jagatai Khan is the fastest warrior in the galaxy. He doesn't have shit on Lionel Johnson. Yeah. It's, it's so awesome too, because he doesn't like, like you're, you're sitting there and like, I'm not going to lie the whole time I'm sitting there. I'm like, this guy's going to get his head chopped off by the lion. Nope, the lion doesn't do that. He bisects him long ways. <laughs> and it's like, I don't... With a ceremonial sword. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but he does it at least two more times to people that can see the future. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason he's the greatest swordsman in the Imperium. <laughs> yeah, actually, on that note, so the lion is considered to be the greatest swordsman in the Imperium. Who would win in a fight with Lucius? Oh, I think the lion would flatten him. Yeah, I think so too. Because I just kind of uh, wish that fight would have happened. Yeah, I want that fight to happen. But um, there's there's a scene where Lucius like thinks that Fulgrim is slipping. This is in a book later on. And then um, like when when Lucius gets his chance, he locks eyes with Fulgrim, and he's like, "Oh shit, he was bluffing this whole time." And he, Lucius backs off because he knows he can't beat a Primarch. Anyway. Oh man, forty uh, forty k is like Warhammer is nothing but tangents and bait and and you know going off on on these random rants. So if you're new to the setting, get used to it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so the lion bisects this dude straight up. It talks about it goes from shoulder to hip, and I mean we know how fat this guy was. That was not a small amount of mass to go through. <laughs> But uh, he's turned on this uh, this ship, so Zahariel just decides to explosively decompress the embarkation deck and send this thing out into space. But it talks about the uh, there are like Imperial crew on other ships who try to uh, to try to mutiny and, and try to seize seize the other ships, and it's mostly put down. Uh, there's some damage to some of the ships. Um, there's like a torpedo salvo let off uh, on on one of them that hits another. But it's dealt with fairly quickly. So I wanted to talk about the Melarchim because we know that these are... Uh... There's there's also a planet-wide revolt in which all the Imperial personnel that had been installed in like um, the administration roles are all executed and killed. And there is a festival going on right beforehand. We get this brief perspective of a remembrancer there that's trying to like take pictures and record music. She is taken alive as a prisoner and this will roll into the Melikim discussion, Brandon. Um, she is to be used as a vessel for the Melikim. Yeah. So the, the dark angels end up, you know, after they kind of secure things in space, they launch an attack on the, on the Melikim where they, they're, they're at. They're basically, they make a psychic warhead. Um, because they figure out that's what they need um, and they have to deliver it manually. But uh, the lion heads down. Um, Luther does not. And it talks about how the lion and Luther get into an argument um, before they leave. And we don't get a lot of insight into that. Uh, we just get told that they're the lion's getting pissed at Luther kind of off in the corner. Um, but uh, that, that's kind of all we see. But we, we, we get a look at the Melikim. First off, we find out where the 70 million people who are missing have all gone. They've all been sacrificed in this pit under this mining station. And they fight what I assume is like 
the Mellorkim kind of lesser demons? Well, so I what I think it so Abnet talks about um, quite a bit in several other books. Um, they they were like physical races, so like just other regular aliens that have been influenced over generations by the warp. So they become less than physical beings and more of these like warp born beings, like the um, in that first Abnet book or in the first Eisenhorn book, um, the Saruthi are these um, they're they're regular aliens, but they over generations and millennia, they've been influenced by the warp. So they are kind of extra dimensional beings now. And that's what I think these these Xenos creatures are. Uh, I think that they're they were once a physical race that had been corrupted over a long period of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. That 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 makes sense. Um, the what, the conversation I kind of want to have around the Melarkim is this is a warp entity. Do you think this is associated with one of the chaos gods, or is this just its own thing? What do you think? I I think it's Zinchian. I almost think that it's its own thing. Um, a Zinch demon really makes a lot of sense because there's so much secrecy around this or so many lies, so much subversion of, of, uh, of truth. So, um, that really makes a lot of sense, but it, it could just as be just as easily be another kind of warp entity because, um, none of these, uh, we don't see any, usually those demons are d- depicted as having some kind of iconography or, you know, they've got their own hallmarks. We don't really get that. So um, I think it's I think it's some kind of undivided entity or some unaffiliated unaffiliated entity. Yeah, I I I kind of thought it could be Zinchi, and I wasn't a hundred percent sold on that idea. Um, it, in it, in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. But they they defeat this thing, um, and then we kind of get this epilogue, which is that they get back up onto the sh- the ship, and within six hours, the lion has put out this decree that he's sending a bunch of people back to Caliban. This is the, the glaring weak spot of the book to me. This needed to be set up better. Um, we needed to have more time around the lion figuring out what happened on the embarkation deck and why he made this decision. Uh, because this is set up in a way that he knows what happened and he's mad about it. And so he's sending Luther away along with a bunch of other people. But it's not it's not established well in my opinion. Um and and for I mean this this is the event that sets off everything for the dark angels. Everything that that will come comes from this right here and it just felt like it was blown right over. Yeah, I wonder what will happen um I wonder if we'll get any more exposition on that later on. I know in the next Dark Angels book, not so much. Um, Luther is certainly pretty dejected about the whole thing. But, um, you know, the story goes on even after that. So it'll be interesting to see what actually happens. Uh, So the lion says that recruitment from Caliban isn't happening fast enough. So we're going to send back a a bunch of Astartes to to pick up the pace and make sure that it gets done. Yeah, but... and. It comes obviously at a time where nobody can think that like this was on his mind at that time. You know, he's about to start a full full blown invasion potentially, and he's talking about recruitment from Caliban. Right. So yeah, it's um, 
it, it, it does feel pretty weak, but and I, don't, I don't know that we'll ever figure out what the line and Luther talk about that last time or what they argue about. I don't know. Um, we know that, you know, at the end of the heresy, uh, they do have it out at some point. And we just probably gonna have to wait to see that story to see if we ever figure out what actually happened. Yeah, I guess so. I just think, you know, if this was the, to me, this was the, the most important part, all the wheels turn based off of this event. So going right over it without even really touching it, it, it it's just to, to me, that would be an argument for why is this book here? Because all of this is set up for, for this key defining thing of why does the lion send Luther back to Caliban? And we don't really talk about it. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to agree with you. It's, um, uh, it, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't kill the book for me. I really enjoy the book. So, um, what do you think your favorite parts are? Um, favorite parts. I, I would say that, um, the, all of the knightly order kind of training that, uh, that Zahariel and Nemiel go through, um, uh, is, is one of my favorite parts. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I wish that this would have gotten into was a bit of the culture of the first Legion before the, uh, before all of the influence from Caliban, uh, because they, they actually had a very unique and interesting, uh, culture based around like their symbol was the grim reaper. Um, uh, and that they are kind of where the, the Monkir, the angels of death comes from. Um, uh, so I would have loved to have seen some of that stuff, but uh, really, I, I think my favorite parts of this book are everything before the Imperium arrives, because um, it's just so it's so interesting to see the culture of Caliban beforehand, uh, before the Imperium, um, because we don't really see that at all in, in anywhere of what what were these places like before the Imperium arrives. So definitely the, the scene with the Watchers is is really cool. And the, the best scene in the book is the, the conversation with uh, the commander of the Knights of Lupus uh, to me that it, it just so nails the tone of the book and what it, if, if you only read that, you would know what the book is about. What about you? What are, what are some of your favorites? Yeah, I really agree. Um, I do like the, um, I really like the siege against the, the Knights of Lupus um, Zahariel and Nemiel kind of have this meteoric rise through the order and, um, you know, the, they really exist in the greatest age of Caliban until it's not because it's, it's capped off by the Imperium showing up and really kind of, uh, it almost devalues all their efforts as, as they say in the, the, uh, the meeting. But I, I really like the scene with the Emperor when they're, they're doing their little, um, interrogation, and the emperor just shows up and he's this magnanimous figure and um, everybody's kind of dumbstruck. But the, the, the first Legion is all just like just another Tuesday. We've, we fought, fought alongside Big E over here. It's no big deal. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is the first time we've gotten the emperor. Uh, um, I mean, we got well, him in like the memory of Horace's vision quest. Yeah, in, in the vision quest, it. he shows up. But this is, this is the first is... like real life appearance of Big E. Yep. And I think um, I think Michael Scanlon is it uh, no it's Mitchell Scanlon does a great job of uh, of really 
the, the book in as a whole. Um, I think he's a great author. I'm looking forward to more stuff from him. I, I do like the, um, the portrayal of the, the conflict or, or I guess the, the soft conflict of the Sarash, Sarashi. Um, just the, the Imperium flattens worlds in a day, but they are completely stonewalled by bureaucracy. And again, the, um, the kind of real life mirroring that we see in, in a lot of modern governments is, is mind blowing. And I, I really got a kick out of that too. There's so much of this book that applies to the real world. Yeah. Like, like I said, the first theme I, I definitely, I picked up on because I think it's so prevalent. It's just pro- is progress for progress's sake. And it, is that actually good? Um, I think you and I both would fall on the same argument end of that, which is no. Um, I think the, the best argument uh, you made was who is it good for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, I, I, I love this book. I, yeah. I really do it. I, and Warwick can vouch for this a hundred percent. I fucking hated the dark angels when I played 40 K. <laughs> I hated them with passion. They like, oh, I, they, they were my second most hated space Marine chapter. And I hate the first two a lot. So is it on thousand sons? No. Oh, Emperor's Children. Dude. Oh, World Word Word Bearers. What Imperial am I missing? Fists. Come on, man. Oh, you you have an unfair bias. Yeah, well, yeah, but that's my point, is I hate them that much, and you're I hate the mad. Dark Angels almost as you're much. You're just mad because they they do all the same shit the Iron Warriors do, but better. That's a hundred percent not true. <laughs> it's but it's an unfair bias. The the point is, is like, I so disliked the Dark Angels, um, you know, from reading about them in 40K. Um, I, I I couldn't stand them. And then I read this book and I really understood. Well, for, first off, the 30K Dark Angels are just a whole different animal. Um, the first Legion is not the Dark Angels of today uh, or of 40K. It's, it's just not. Um, they're so much more interesting and so much more nuanced and there's so much more going on there. And this book is what made me be like, wow. I I remember the first time I read this book, I taught, I I called you and I was like, I'm really torn because I love this book, but it's about the dark angels. Yeah. And I think um, the same thing happened to me when I read uh, no, no fear, which is the, the uh, betrayal at Kalth book. Because and I know I've touched on this um, previously that uh, I used to think that 40k ultramarine players were um, just copying box art. There was no originality to it. But after I read No No Fear, I was like, oh shit, these guys are awesome. And it's like they, they kind of get this rap for being the most generic legion or the most generic chapter in 40k. But they are one of the coolest legions to me in, in 30k. That's one of the things I love so much about this series is um, you get to really deep dive into just about every Legion and and see them on a level that we have not seen them in the 40k setting at all. The 40k setting, they're all very tropey. Um, I think you would agree with that. Um, you know, the Dark Angels are, they're secretive and that's it. The uh, The Space Wolves are 
Vikings in space. And that's, you know, that's about as in depth as it gets with them. Uh, the white scars get a, get a pretty bad rap too, because I know, I know I t- touched on this the other night. I was talking about how, um, if the emperor had a text to speech device, did a deep dive on white scars lore. And they're like, the only description we ever get about the white scars is that they deploy using ultra rapid deployment tactics. And that is all the work that GW has ever put into the 40 K white scars. That being said, there are a couple of White Scars books later on in the series that Chris Wright does that are absolute bangers. And they they are some awesome characters in that Legion, too. It's another one I'm looking forward to getting into. Yeah, and, and let's be honest here. The Khan is the most Chad of all the Primarchs. You really think so? Dude, he has the sickest burns. That's true. Yeah. What? Um. How does he get Gilliman again? You gotta remind me. I keep blocking that one out of my memory. The, the one... The one I always remember is how he gets Fulgrim. Fulgrim is one of the best. It's and like the sickest gotta... burn in 30,000 years. <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't know if we should. Should we repeat that one here or wait until we get into it in the book? Oh, fuck it. I'll, I'll just say it. So Fulgrim, uh, Fulgrim walks up to the con and is like, there, I there's... hear you. They're sitting around like a, a dinner table at, at the uh, Triumphant Olinor, and Fulgrim's like goading him on about being a better swordsman. And uh, anyway, you tell it. Yeah, it, Fulgrim's like, I hear you do strange things to your ships, and the Khan just goes, I hear you do strange things to your warriors. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a precursor to the rape. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, cut that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So. Anyway, okay. Descent of Angels. Let's finish up here. Okay. So what are we missing? Um, I I like 90% of the characters. There's a, um, a, a pre, pre-Imperium knight, Brother Amatis, who's just this total chad hero he's killed a bunch of great beasts it's where zahariel gets his cool pistol and he's the guy that inspires zahariel and nemiel to be the the men that they turn out to be he's one of my favorite characters it's it's a bummer that uh the the beast of indriago gets him yeah but in some ways he got off easy yeah he missed uh he missed the big suck that comes around the corner Boy, I, I, I don't think we're missing anything. I feel like we did a pretty good job. I really enjoy talking about the themes more than just kind of ham-handedly recapping the story. I know Manipal and I talked about that, that I do, I feel like I do much better talking about the themes than I do recapping the story, because I just go on and on and on and on. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this new format. But for our listeners out there, if you really liked the format, let us know. Uh, you can email us at gmail at legioncast18 at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at legioncast18. As I think we've made clear, we will, we'll read your tweets and we'll read your emails. Um, yeah. And we, we, we are happy to receive the feedback, you know. We never got any feedback from the Battleship Chili Dog, so I think they took my suggestion and rammed that planet. I'm worried about you guys. Please email us back. Oh, I believe that the good ship Chili Dog is still out there. Doing the Emperor's work. Hopefully. Well, um, should we plug the next book? Yeah, well, so let's let's talk about, you know, we're rolling into Christmas here. So so let's kind of talk about our schedule a bit. 
Um, we are going to be doing our Secret Santa Gifts Exchange. We will be recording that and, and posting that in an episode. That'll be our next episode is another hobby roundtable. I think we've pretty much fallen into this is going to be our format now. Book, then hobby roundtable, then book. Um, and speaking of the next book, the next book, I I will not exa- I know I say this for every book, but I really mean it with this one. This is one of the best in the series. Um, and that is Legion by Dan Abnett. This is this book is a masterpiece. Um, yeah, I am so excited. Uh, I believe that Paul will be joining us to talk about that one. We'll be excited to have him. Um, but uh, go ahead and check that book out, um, and then look for our next hobby roundtable to drop as well. Part two is Electric Boogaloo. What'll part three be? Oh, Revenge of the Sith. I don't know. Um, what are some other uh, Return of the King? How about that? Okay. All right, we'll figure that out. Yeah. All right. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter or uh, shoot us an email. Um, like I said, legioncast18 at gmail.com and at legioncast18. Thanks for joining us again, and we will see you on the next episode. Yeah.